Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the final declaration of nominations for the federal election and the role of housing policy in the upcoming election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Elle Gibbs. Elle is a writer and disability activist with an unhealthy interest in Senate committees. Hello, Elle. Hi, Ben. And my second guest is Gareth Bryant. Gareth is a lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney who researches and teaches about a range of economic, social and environmental policy issues. Hello, Gareth. Hey, Ben. The final list of candidates was published last Wednesday following the close of nominations the day before. 1,056 candidates nominated for the House of Representatives, along with 458 candidates for the Senate. That's a small increase in lower house candidates compared to 2016, but a big drop in candidates for the Senate. That's to be expected in part due to this election not being a double dissolution, but the number of parties running in each state has also dropped, making the ballot a bit more manageable. A large proportion of the candidates are running for minor parties of the right. Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is running candidates in all 151 seats, while One Nation and Fraser Anning's new party are each running in about a third of seats. Elle, what did you find the most interesting about the candidate declaration? Well, I had a play with your very fancy spreadsheet, Ben, uh, that you'd done for your uh, candidate uh, nominations post. And I thought it was really interesting because I wanted to have a look at where uh, the Conservatives were running in in terms of the lower house because their strategy is really clear. Uh, They're trying to get Senate seats in Queensland and for um, One Nation to get their Senator returned in WA. So it's really clear in terms of where their lower house is actually um, their focus is. So in Queensland, uh, One Nation is running in every seat except Kennedy. Hmm. And uh, the Conservative uh, Fraser Annings party is running in every seat in Queensland. Um, And then UAP, of course, is running in every seat. So I think that that competition on the right, uh, particularly in Queensland, is going to be completely fascinating in terms of where those preference flows go and how many actually go where the parties have directed them to go, if that makes sense, from how to votes. So that will depend a lot on what the parties are actually going to be able to manage to do in terms of staffing booths, and particularly for pre-poll. Actually being able to get people to pre-poll in those 30 seats across Queensland is going to be a real, really tough challenge. It's a tough challenge for the major parties, let alone for the entire three weeks of pre-poll, let alone for you know, a smaller party. So it'll be interesting to see how many booths they've managed to staff on the day as mm. well. But they're obviously counting on this strategy of being able to run um, across every single seat in Queensland and that that's going to then translate into enough Senate votes to actually win that seat. But with three parties running for potentially that one Senate seat on the right, it'll be very interesting to see, again, where those preferences flow. So that was one of the things I was really interested in, how much this all costs and where the money's coming from. So that's another thing just from me having, you know, seen how much this does actually cost to do in terms of printing how to votes and core flutes and getting people on booths and just, you know, nominating candidates, like the candidate fee alone for, and, it, and it increased before this election, yeah, so, so it's, it's what, two thousand two thousand dollars now. So that's like quarter of a million dollars for Fraser Anning's party, and then for Clive, you know, well, as he said the other day, he's got four billion in the bank, so it doesn't really matter. But that's three quarters of a million dollars of just doing the candidate fees mm. without even thinking anything else. So, or no, I, I think I costed it on like a couple of core flutes and flyers and the candidate fee, mm. and that that turned out about five average of around five thousand a seat just for a t- you know the basics sort of stuff to do. But, you know, that's a lot of money. So where is that kind of... I mean, we know where it's coming from, from Clive. But for the other parties, for One Nation uh, and for Fraser Reading's party, 
what are they going to actually do in terms of getting that money? We won't well, know in divorce until next year. I saw someone calculate that uh, Fraser Anning's party would have spent 140k just on the nomination fees. So yeah. again, that'll be interesting to see where that came from. With the talk of the preference deals and so on this week among the far right as well as um, Palmer and the Liberal Party and the Coalition, um, that's of course dependent on um, capacity to both get a how to, how to vote in voters' hands, um, as well as then whether those voters are going to actually follow those how to votes. Um, I feel like uh, in the commentary that we've seen this week, um, both of those two um, effects have been exaggerated. Um, <laughs> mm. And I think you know when we actually look at the results and unpack them after the election, um, it'll be interesting to see the actual effect of those deals. So the coalition appears to have done a preference deal with Clive Palmer, mm. which, uh, which will be interesting because... I believe in 2013 he did pay booth workers and he will probably do that again. He has talked about doing that yeah, again. So yeah, so they're, they're just not the same as having committed volunteers. Like no. those people don't 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 stick it out. I mean, we saw in uh, 2015 in the state election in New South Wales that no land tax hired a lot of staff who then a lot of them walked off the job when there were rumours about whether they would get paid or mm. not. But we've also seen other parties pay booth workers over the years in, and they don't, you know, they don't, they don't last past lunchtime and yeah. they're not necessarily enthusiastic about the party's policies and that kind of stuff. And all of that, yeah. we, as we know, makes a huge big difference in terms of um, undecided voters when they're coming into the booth uh, and in terms of how willing people are then to follow the how to vote. Uh, but the, the Liberal Party, on the other hand, like they will have a lot of people on booths. Generally, Liberal voters are more likely to be disciplined in how they preference. And I think it could play a big role in helping Palmer out if he can get to the top of that pile, or at least in terms of pushing him ahead of his rivals like Malcolm Roberts and Fraser Enning. So that's definitely going to be interesting. The other thing about the Senate is uh, the, the shrinking of the ballot, the sideways shrinking. So uh, we didn't see as much of that in New South Wales. New South Wales is still the biggest, but all the other states, I mean, South Australia is now half the size that it was six years ago. Do you think ago. that's partly because of those increased barriers to kind of coming in, that it, it just becomes a bit more effort and cost in terms of participating? Or is it I, just because of the half-Senate election? I think that might be a bit of it, uh, but I, I believe the main change to Senate nominations happened before the last election. Mm. The recent change was just to the House of Representatives. Um, and in the Senate, uh, I think the big change is it's a combination of obviously double dissolution last time I suspect covered up the effects of changing the voting system. So some of these parties clearly have decided the model doesn't work for them mm. anymore. They, some of them have merged. Some of them have, have just gone away. I mean, we don't have people like Family First anymore. And some um, are focusing on state or territory elections yeah. rather than federal. And like the Nick Xenophon team is now the Centre Alliance and is only running in South Australia. Their kind of scope has shrunk a lot mm. and people like Lambie, she's only running in Tasmania. So there has been a bit of a concentration just going, you're going to run in one state and work hard, which was one of the predicted effects of Senate reform was that until then it made a lot of sense to, to run people all over the country. Mm. Um, which also brings up another point as well, which I've been discussing a lot with people and I'd be interested in your thoughts about, you know, we've, we're relying almost entirely to, to limit the number of people on the ballot, which I think is a reasonable principle for, for, for us to say, you know, there's a, it's reasonable for voters to be able to understand what the ballot looks like and have limitations on who runs. We've re relied almost entirely on cash to mm. do that. Uh, you know, if you want to create a political party in Australia... You need 500 members, but if you're a member of federal parliament, you don't need to do that. And 
if you are an independent, you have to you have to get a hundred nominators in your electorate in order to run. But if you're a member of that party, you say that party that has five hundred that doesn't need five hundred members because, say, Fraser Anning is a member of your party, uh, then you can also just nominate candidates wherever you want in the country with no local representation, no need for anyone. That's a, the only that's a thing very you need convenient is little loophole, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and it and it means that in a way where where we're limiting based on money rather than limiting based on activity, which possibly means in some cases for people like Clive Palmer, uh, it makes it a lot easier for him that way because he can just write a big check. Yeah, I mean, that's really concerned me about this election. It really has been um, a very big money election, particularly from Clive Palmer. Like his advertising, he has he spent as somewhere between 30 and $50 million, whereas the ACTU's spend, which they're saying they're going to spend as much as um, the 2007 election, they are estimating they're going to spend $10 million. And that's kind of the collective funds of three years of union fees going in in there mm. to actually fund that campaign. And there was a couple of other estimates around people spending $1 million and that kind of stuff. And I really have issues around those kind of large money able to basically influence elections just because they're able to put huge amounts of money on the table. And I think that there has to be some kind of electoral reform that means that, you know, communities that want to come together can actually have an equal go at a representation and a chance at getting into parliament without having to spare $4 billion. I'm sorry, I keep going back to that because I was watching that particular interview with Palmer where he just basically stood there in front of journalists and just went, I've got $4 billion in the bank. I can do whatever I like. I've got you know this much money and I can literally do whatever I want. I don't care what you say and walked off. What, how do you think that plays with voters? I mean, Gareth, what do you think about like Clive... Like, Clive Palmer going out there, it's clearly a strategy that Donald Trump used, for example, to be able to say, I, I'm neutral, like, I can't be bought, I don't need to worry about big money or whatever because I am the big money. But what, how do you think that plays with voters with that kind of like, like sort of reveling in how much wealth he has? Hmm. It's interesting to, to note the sort of parallels between the pitch that a party like the Greens makes in terms of not being corrupted by those kind of donations, um, where the emphasis is on people power and small scale donations and that sort of thing. Um, and then the right making the kind of, on paper, a similar pitch, you know, we're not, we're not going to be, um, we're not going to be uh, influenced by these kind of donations as well, but it's got nothing to do with any kind of constituency or, um, or membership or small-scale um, support, but actually because of uh, just accumulated wealth. Um, it is certainly um, an issue of concern, and so I think one of the things that um, I've been reflecting on during this discussion so far is that we're seeing both... Um, uh, we're seeing both democratic pressures that are leading towards things like um, uh, Senate reform and uh, reduction in um, nomin- uh, number of nominations for more democratic reasons in terms of rational responses to not being able to game the system anymore, as well as um, financial barriers and those kind of things, uh, which um, are kind of the opposite kind of pressures, but are all thrown into the mix um, when we're looking at the overall outcome um, for the field that we're seeing in this election. Mm. So difficult kind of um, counter uh, dynamics to, to unpack. And probably worth even getting back to some of those kind of conversations around, you know, public funding of elections, but also then to putting caps on spending, because I think that um, Mm. some countries have bans on, say, television advertising, because I actually think that that television and advertising is what 
chews up the most amount of money. So in terms of, but in Australia, we have constitutional issues around that. But in terms of capping spending, I think that would actually then probably push parties more towards that kind of activity, as you were saying, Ben, that kind of on the ground work, that that is not necessarily around how much money you have, but how many supporters you have who are able to go out and door knock or do stalls or do any of that kind of actual political activity, rather than just by influence through Mm. advertising. So, and I think that that is probably a conversation that is really worth us having. I mean, it's not one that, I don't know who likes political advertising, but I don't know anyone who likes political advertising apart from people who are in advertising uh, and uh, who make these kind of make a lot of money at this time of year. So you talk about fifty million, and then you talk about the scale, how much bigger that is than the scale of what the union movement would be spending, or compare that to how much Malcolm Turnbull spent in twenty sixteen. There doesn't appear to be much precision or much nuance with Palmer's campaign. That is very much throwing money in all directions. He's uh his message is very, very samey. Often there isn't much nuance to it. You don't get the impression it's being tested particularly much or is being targeted like it's appearing all over Sydney in places that you don't think of. And it, compa- it makes me think of 2013 where he was he was letterboxing a DVD about his Titanic project and things like that, that um, on the one hand he has this much money, but in the, in the end like money has an influence, but it, it isn't in the end a game of who has the most money. Like no. in the end he has to kind of spend a lot more money because his case is kind of weak and he doesn't really – he doesn't have a base, he doesn't have a movement – uh, and he doesn't really have the people around him who know about politics. And so his his answer is kind of just spend more. But, I mean, it may work in the end for him to get himself elected to the Senate. But uh, in terms of, like, dollars spent for return in terms of votes, I, I'm very confident it's going to be, like, one of the least efficient political campaigns <laughs> of this election. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right, Ben. I think, that, I think you agree. But it, yeah. I, I also just... Um, I want to see people engage in the political process and having a say and feeling like they're being represented and all of those kind of things. And I'm just not convinced that this monster amounts of money spent on television advertising in particular is any way to actually do that. I just think those two things are not necessarily compatible. I think it has in some ways created um, a sense that he is a viable um, candidate, which then mm. led to him uh, being put into some of the recent polling questions, which then boosted his chances. Um, I think his bargaining position when he was going to um, the Liberal, the Coalition, um, in terms of signing up for that preference deal. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether um, that dynamic, which is a very elite dynamic, spend money, get into um, the poll- pollsters' questions, make a preference deal, then translates into actual um, political power in terms and- of votes. And does the souffle rise twice? Like he he did. The, it's basically the same strategy he mm. did in 2013. Worked brilliantly for him in 2013. We didn't really get to test his political support in 2016 because no one from his party ran. But like, I I would assume there's at least some memory about this, and it does appear that maybe his tack is a little bit different this time. That is, it's more of a clearly right wing party that. Mm. He's leading, you know, Brian Burston is a member. There's been that element of the kind of online alt-right having links to kind of being supporters of Clive Palmer. There's Whereas last time there was a bit more of a centrist. anti-Chinese thing. stuff that, that is um, really active, particularly in Queensland. Mm. I think that that's been a, a, a very 
particularly on socials, there's that very anti-Chinese and xenophobic kind of messaging that is, yes, alt-right, but it was also feeding into people's anxieties around jobs and that kind of stuff and in a way that is, you know, gross and racist and also uh, hypocritical, you know, from him particularly. And it's a crowded field um, <laughs> on, on the right, whereas he was the kind of the anti-politics, anti-party uh, person for a short period of time. Um, he kind of let that um, get undone a little bit when he started doing um, deals. And I think, you know, maybe it seems like when you look at someone like Pauline Hansen, uh, they can, parties like that can survive uh, everybody leaving them on a periodic basis in, as soon as they get elected. Uh, but when, um, when Palmer started doing deals uh, with um, the government in the Senate, that really um, started to, to hurt him. It's very interesting how much of this House of Representatives field comes from the right. I mean, there's some electorates where there's nine candidates and four or five of them you'd call far right. Um, And it is interesting about what impact that will have because we don't have a group voting ticket system anymore. You know, these votes can exhaust, these votes can leak. And I do think it's possible that could play a role in meaning, you know, where otherwise there might be enough votes to get one of these people elected. Maybe, you know, maybe the LNP wins instead because their votes distribute. There certainly was a sense from 2016 that... Uh, voters, when they're preferencing, generally prefer the bigger parties. And you could imagine a lot of those far-right party votes are leaking to the Liberal Party in a way that they didn't under the old system. But it also suggests, I mean, the state election that just finished in New South Wales, there was these three parties that were various shades of competing with the Greens or centre-left or whatever, all of whom ran a lot of candidates in the lower house, kind of following the same strategy. And I remember at the time commenting that that was quite unusual to come from the left. Mm. And it seems we've reverted to the norm here, that it's sort of the right that's divided while the the minor party left is mostly in the Greens, although there's a lot of animal justice party candidates running too. Yeah, it's interesting to see them starting to actually really run serious lower house campaigns. Um, I mean, they're not going to win a Senate seat. So it is interesting to see whether those votes are going to go straight to the Greens and then presumably on to Labor, um, but particularly help the Greens in their... There's a couple of... They've got a very couple of tight, really tight Senate re-election races. So mm. it'll be interesting to see how much they don't poll enough. They barely get the 4%. So it'll be interesting to see whether there is any more movement around that, whether some of this um, sort of activism in the animal justice space has starting to translate into actual votes. I think some of that did in New, in New South Wales in the state election, it did. There was a couple mm. of seats where um, there had been traditionally high green votes that were starting to leak quite substantially to the animal justice party. So I think that was interesting in that thing. I think some of the... Um, the gender aspect of this is also quite interesting in terms of, um, you know, the, the right, the far right are not running women mostly in candidates. Women also don't generally vote for them. And so with the very high enrolments uh, for this election, whether that will actually impact on their vote. Like I still remain convinced that the actual voters available to the far right is quite small and so that they're all actually in competition with each other rather than expanding into a huge big new lot of voters so am I correct Gareth or is that something that I'm just making up to reassure myself? <laughs> well I think that's right I mean one of the things that, that we've had a piece of evidence recently was the New South Wales state election where um, it seemed as though the preferencing um, among the right was far less disciplined mm. than um, among the left um, that's partly a product of optional 
preferential voting in the upper house in New South Wales. But um, we also have optional preferential voting in the Senate too. We do in practice, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it's there's more encouragement of you to preference, but it's still like in the end, the system is largely the same. That's right. So a one or one and two, for example, yep. vote above the line just still gets counted yep. even though you don't preference the uh, full six. And in the end, that, that costs the right a seat. Like probably the LDP or the the Liberal Democrats or the Christian Democrats would have won that last seat instead of animal justice, uh, and in the end that shifted the balance of the centre of the upper house by one seat to the left because of that preference flow. Mm. So, El, you were saying about the gender balance of the candidates that yeah. Um, I've done a bit of analysis on my website about the gender balance of the candidates. Uh, still got a handful of candidates I haven't been able to categorise. If you if you're uh, interested, um, but. Generally, Labor and the Greens are miles ahead. They are running the same number of, of men in the lower house. Um, and, uh, you know, the one of the things that's interesting is I went back and analysed breaking down the candidates for the major parties based on whether they're incumbents, based on the idea that it's like you can only do so much immediately about incumbents, but what's happening with the new candidates? That yeah, people w- are women will through. end up in marginal seats and yeah. you're not in safe seats and so they don't become incumbents. So one of the interesting things I found was, whereas at the last election it was very different, but the coalition is actually running uh, roughly even in terms of its candidates, both in marginal seats, although most of those seats are Labor marginals, and in its own safe seats that there were seven safe coalition seats where the incumbent is retiring or has lost their pre-selection. And three of those seats were held by women and they're running for women. So they're actually like, in terms of those new candidates, they're actually not doing too badly right now, but they have such a massive legacy, particularly from the 2013 election, which is the last time they had a big intake of new MPs, that they have such a large legacy of mostly electing men that probably what will happen in this election is a bunch of a handful or maybe even a larger group of coalition marginal seat holders will probably lose their seats. And then it'll be a test next time that the coalition's on its up. That'll be the moment to judge. But um, I mean, the Liberals internally also have done quite a lot of work on this, with the Liberal women particularly, who have pushed very, very hard to start to change some of the pre-selections and mm. to, um, like, they have a reasonably democratic pre-selection system, so the local groups do have a strong say in who gets pre-selected. And so the networks of Liberal women have actually pushed, started to push and get organised in the same way that Labor and Greens women have for a long time. And, I mean, not that they haven't done that before, but but kind of reorganising and re-energising around making sure <laughs> that those local groups do pre-select women and that there are women coming through and putting their hands up. And so I think you've seen some st- quite strong fields of candidates where there's been multiple women putting their hands up. And and that's been good to see from the Liberals in terms of a change around that. Um, but again, I think it's been driven internally because of the, the huge pressure that they have had uh, from this term in government where they haven't been able to produce more than you know one or two women in the cabinet. And that's just not acceptable in 2019. Like, it's just not. So uh, finally, I think there's, there's parts of their party that are getting that message and are starting to do that. But as you say, it's going to take some time um, to change. Um, I think that you know, seeing the gender balances for, you know, the far right parties and for Clive Palmer's party is, you know, pretty disappointing, but not surprising in terms of um, their records. Uh, but I, it's also not commented on, and I really wish it would be commented on more because some of them, particularly Fraser Anning's party, have extremely anti-women policies. Um, and it would be nice to actually get some of that 
commented on occasionally. There was a, I think Jacqueline Maley had a nice piece yesterday kind of talking about the blokey kind of press kind of campaign and coverage. And I think that uh, it's really starting to show in terms of the kinds of uh, who's out there, who's campaigning. It's all blokes. And so mm. it, it these these kind of really uh, policies that, that will hurt women and hurt children and, uh, and then policies that are, you know, like the childcare stuff, which was huge. That was an enormous policy announcement around basically free childcare for anyone earning under, you know, 70,000 a year. Was it enormous? And it just kind of disappeared. Progress remains slow, mm. um, and even Labor and the Greens um, are nowhere near um, representative in terms of the actual overall numbers of gender in, in the population, and. Um, for those parties whose voters skew towards um, women, that creates even even more of a gap. Um, so, and that's that's before we get to other issues of representation. Um, I know that you know L might want to talk about um, disability uh, representation as well as people of colour. And when you, when you get to those sort of things, the both the candidates and the makeup of parliament looks even less like Australian society. One of the policy areas where there's been the biggest gap between the major parties has been on housing policy, where Labor has pledged to end negative gearing for new investors and reduce the capital gains tax discount. Uh, This comes in an environment where housing prices are significantly higher in relation to incomes than any time in recent history, although there has been a small downward correction recently. Um, So, Gareth, do you think housing policy will have a big impact on the election? I think you're right that housing issues are quite prominent um, and one of the clear points of differentiation um, between the two parties. So, as you say, um, Labor policy is to restrict negative gearing um, from now on uh, to new build um, investors only, um, to halve the current capital gains tax discount for um, for uh, investment housing as well. Um, there's some other policy issues um, around housing at play. Um, Labor does want to encourage uh, more institutional investment um, in rental property. Um, we've seen some broader housing issues, so there was a bit of noise about inheritance taxes over the last couple of weeks, which comes down to questions around taxing the family home, um, a potential for an interest rate cut next week when the Reserve Bank meets um, in response to low uh, inflation numbers and potentially um, wanting to kickstart the economy a bit more by reducing rental um, payments as well as encouraging, sorry, reducing mortgage payments and encouraging new lending. Um, and although, as you said, uh, their house prices are high, uh, the context is a new one, I think, uh, mm. in the sense that housing prices have fallen by about 10% in the last 12 months, um, where what we've seen over the last many electoral cycles is a, is a uh, cycle of asset price inflation. So housing, I think, um, is important. There's potentially big winners and big losers uh, from what Labor is announcing. Um, what's an interesting question, I think, uh, is whether there's an asymmetry there between the winners and the losers uh, in the sense that um, those with more to lose are likely to um, uh, have their vote influenced a bit more by the housing policy changes than those that gain to win from increased housing affordability, especially on a, a technical issue like uh, negative gearing and capital gains tax. Yeah, I think, and I think that Labor's made a very clear calculation 
you know, just pure electoral maths on that because, you know, the Australia Institute's, you know, helpfully done uh, some really nice, uh, neat little studies where they've looked at, um, in 2017, they looked at the top 10 electorates uh, by the average capital gains discount. So they were Wentworth, Higgins, North Sydney, um, Kooyong, uh, Warringah, Brisbane, you know, Sydney, uh, and then... Interestingly, quite a few of those seats are actually in play this election, but they're, they're kind of on a different axis, and unsurprisingly, indeed. negative gearing is not the kind of basis no, of the is, fight No, this there. is capital gains. So negative, oh, capital gains ge- negative steps, yeah. gearing, um, this is from 2015, was Wentworth, Curtin, Kooyong, Bradfield, Higgins, Warringah, North Sydney, Brisbane, Goldstone. So similar... Same places. Yeah, similar, yeah. Same, basically the same places. So these are also incredibly wealthy areas, um, and, you know, they are pretty much liberal voting areas. So I think uh, Labor's made a very clear calculation around the, you know, the electoral maths of this, that they're not going to win those seats, or if they are, they're going to win them on um, other issues like climate change or other that kind of stuff. This isn't going to change the policies. Um, I think it's interesting uh, in terms of ALP seats um, are actually the seats that have the most what's called housing stress. So that's where households are paying more than 30% of their income on either rent or mortgages. So uh, and then, um, so what we find is those seats uh, are absolutely in Western Sydney. So um, I had a little play of, of uh, NatSEM data. So this is the National is it a, a Association of something, of modelling people. University of Economic, oh, there you go. Modelling, you know, clever people who, who do numbers. Um, and so um, the the seats were Blacksland in order. So how about most housing stress, Blacksland, Watson, Fowler, then Melbourne, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Spence, McMahon, Werriwa, Chifley, Brand, Parramatta, Pierce, um, and then at the bottom, Bradfield, Mitchell. Um, interesting, Solomon was in there, um, as in some of the lowest parts hmm. of housing stress. That's, that's Darwin area. Yes. Yeah. So, which I thought was interesting. Interesting. There's there's a lot of Labor seats on that list, but not there many is. of them are marginal. They're, they're absolutely. So that was the other part Pierce, that I did. Pierceism is the uh, the Attorney General seat in Western Australia. That's certainly one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the margins aren't great. So this kind of uh, so they're doing the calculations on do, taking action on these kind of um, tax loopholes, which is what they are, which is negative gearing and these huge concessions on capital gains tax. So just so you're aware, this stuff costs somewhere between 20 and $40 billion every single year each. Mm. So these are enormous sums of money every single year. Every time I see them when I go to the budget and I do the lock-up and all of that stuff, I get very cross because we put in asks that are quite small and then I go, why didn't Yeah. So... Uh, and that so, sort of stuff. Am I right to think that the, the dental and the childcare announcements in the last couple of days, the big spending from Labor, that's mostly come from the money that they're planning to recoup from these, maybe some other, oh, like yeah. uh, the franking credits? Yeah. Is a big one as well. Uh, some of the superannuation tax concession rollbacks as well. Um, yeah. Some of the not going ahead with the large tax cuts from the coalition. So there's kind of a pool. They've got a really big pool of money to actually do mm. some of these big spends. Um, but they're not taking action on these kind of um, things that are going to make it better for people in significant housing stress. And that's where I kind of get... Um, sort of upset and sad because uh, the people like the Anglicare uh, rental affordability snapshot came out today and that showed really, really clearly that out of the uh, 69,000 properties that were for rent on snapshot day, there were two in Australia that someone on Newstart could rent. Two. And there was one 
for, for people on youth allowance. And there were 371 for people in on the DSP in the whole of Australia. And so 96% of the rents are not affordable for people on income support and 74% for people on minimum wage. And so there's a bunch of policy kind of work that's been done around, you know, the main one is raise the rate, which is raising the rate of new start, um, raising um, the uh, rental assistance, which is the extra bit of money that people get if you're on income support. And that affects people across all kinds of income support, so all the different parenting payments, all of that kind of stuff. We've asked um, for various kind of rent assistance. We've asked for significant investment in public housing, and that is just not really on the table. These kind of build-to-rent sort of weird investor incentive programs that, that get announced and funded don't actually deliver affordable homes for people, particularly on income support. So it's a, it's a level of frustration around why Labor isn't doing that. I mean, but also then the electoral maths is really clear because it's the people who are really affected don't live in marginal seats and it's not going to change the vote. So they've made a calculation that uh, capital gains tax and, and uh, negative gearing, which are both uh, big money savers, their reforms in that area, but also... Uh, that seems like it's more aimed at the people who can't buy a house, which is a very different type of housing stress to the people who are struggling to even pay the rent. Like, there's kind of a couple of different mm. uh, groups of of difficulty with housing happening here, and this this labour it's very aimed at that at that market. I mean, do we do we think is there any particular seats you've seen either of you that are like the ones that could be in play on this issue or places where maybe, I mean, the coalition's talking a lot about this issue, but when you when you list off that list of seats with the most negative gearing capital gains tax beneficiaries, uh, it's it, none of those sound like places where the <laughs> Labor Party, like they're places where the Liberals are fighting independence, but they're not places where they're competing with Labor. It's yeah. It's it's not really. I think that um, it's like that traditional thing about um, it's the aspirations. So people have aspire to be landlords or aspire to own another home or aspire to sell their current home. And and I, I don't actually believe this is true, but this is a, a political myth around that this people vote for their aspiration and that people will vote so that one day they will have access to negative gearing and capital gains tax and. Um, I don't actually believe it's true, but there is a lot of mythology around that aspiration and that it drives um, voters' interests much more than their reality. So mm. in terms of um, uh, delivering policies that will help them right now, whereas that this policy will help them if they get rich. Mm. And so I think I'm not necessarily convinced that that's true, but I think that there is a lot of that mythology that's been bought into by both parties. And so there's a lot of that driving what they're doing. Yeah, I think that that's right. And the electoral maths is relatively clear for Labor, just in the sense that it is people on higher incomes and have, who have higher wealth who are the biggest beneficiaries of the existing tax treatment. Um, the, a, the aim is certainly um, to uh, put some downward pressure, I think, on house prices. So it is about people who um, are currently locked out of buying their own home, um, who are the key target demographic for Labor, as well as just being able to fund um, the policies. One of the problems with, with that for Labor is that because all of this is grandfathered, that actually does limit the amount of revenue that these policies generate um, in the short term. One interesting point of comparison, I think, when you're looking at um, who, which electorates are actually affected by 
this change. Um, so the numbers that um, Elle was talking about was um, in terms of the quantum of dollars um, that different electorates um, are benefiting from uh, the current um, arrangements. Um, they're obviously in the wealthier electorates, um, include some of those key um, independent marginal contests. So you explains why Karen Phelps, for example, has come out um, and said that she will oppose the negative gearing changes. Centre Alliance has also not fully committed to them. They're sort of in similar political ground um, in some lower house seats and, and the Senate. Um, but some interesting data from the parliamentary um, library um, which um, is not just calculated in terms of dollars, but is also calculated in terms of number of people who are negatively gearing in electorates, is maybe a little bit more interesting and a little bit more of a mixed bag. Um, so um, the top 10 seats in terms of proportions of people who are um, claiming a, a net rent loss um, is Durack, Solomon, Mitchell, Fenner, Lingiari, Moore, Canberra, Tangy and Flynn. They're, they're defence seats, aren't they? They're, they're seats that have a, a high... Because I know that that's what partly Quite why... Quite a few of them are, yeah. Why um, people have said that's why the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition are spending so much time in the Northern Territory because that, that issue, particularly negative gearing, is hitting defence people. Mm. It never occurred to me mm. that that was an issue for defence Staff that they were particularly impacted by negative gearing. So, what does the list of of um, seats on the other side look like then? At the bottom, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's actually still overrepresented by um, the coalition, but probably um, the National Party in in, in, mm. in in some of the country areas. So, from the bottom up, Lyons, Mallee, Bass, Lyne, Clark, Farrah, Braddon, and uh, Wannan. Um, so yeah. Mally and Farah potentially in play, and when you look in the top twenty, I know I think Flynn is a, a marginal. Um, yeah, definitely. Electorate in the top ten, in the top twenty of negative gearing uh, or net rental loss um, reporting uh, households, um, Capricornia, Chisholm, and Reed um, are mm. in there as well. Yeah. So um, one of the things I guess to that would affect the political implications um, are both. There's a raw numbers calculation and there's also a how much money um, is actually this policy going to potentially cost people like the people who are currently enjoying these benefits um, going forward and what proportion of income um, that will be. And some of those seats do have lower levels of income and wealth and so potentially the um, reliance on negative gearing is greater even though the actual dollar figure in, is lower than mm. seats like Wentworth. So one of the things I did want to raise was the complications around housing for people with disability because we talk about all of this stuff um, sort of predicated on on the idea that everyone has equal access to to, to houses and that's just not true. So I think we saw a, a, that dust up between uh, Peter Dutton and his Labor challenger, Ali France, um, talking about uh, why she couldn't seem to find accessible housing in you know the, the seat and that he didn't actually believe that that was true and all of that kind of stuff. So um, she's a wheelchair at home and um, trying to find wheelchair accessible accommodation is just completely impossible. So 
So um, less than 5% of how new houses that's been built in the last decade um, is accessible at all, even at the basic level. So um, there are a range of issues around making sure that housing is accessible to people with disability and it affects a lot of people. And so mm. uh, it's been one of those things of trying to get that on the radar it has been very, very difficult in terms of um, it, people are talking about things like negative gearing and capital gains tax and, and I'm kind of like why can't you make everybody kind of uh, build at least one you know, entrance that uh, you can use a wheelchair for? Uh, why can't we include that in all mandatory housing, you know, and, and some of those kind of things? And I get quite frustrated around that. Um, so we've got, there's people who are coming through the NDIS process who are still in nursing homes and people who are being forced into group homes and into nursing homes and those kind of things and some of them are friends of mine and so I get really cranky about the fact that we can't seem to all of this money is sloshing around to be spent on all of these things and yet and we, we can't haven't, we haven't gotten we can't anything solve from... these kind of issues that are uh, are so critical for people and um, there's certainly um, I know that people are trying to raise these issues around the country and trying to talk about them, but uh, it would be really great to see some some significant commitments that look and include people with disability in uh, general policy, not just off in the, the disabled area policy, but that we're actually part of mainstream, because we are, uh, mainstream policy announcements that we're included, you know, as, you know, when you're talking about housing, that you include the issues for us and that kind of stuff. So um, I think, uh, as you said, Gareth, there's not much representation. There are not many disabled people in the parliament. And so I think that uh, having more of us in parliament might actually make a difference in terms of those issues uh, being more widely known. I mean, Jordan certainly, Jordan Steele-John, the Green Senator from WA, has certainly uh, raised some issues in a way that I don't think a non-disabled person could have done. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to Gareth and Elle for joining me. Thank you, Gareth. Thanks, Ben. And thank you, Elle. Thanks, Ben. Before we go, I'd like to encourage everyone to think about what you're going to do with the election material that will be coming to your house or that you'll be handed this year. The National Library of Australia, the State Library of New South Wales, and I assume other state libraries will all be collecting election ephemera for their collection. That's leaflets, letters, and how-to-vote cards. In particular, if you cast a vote this week or pass by a pre-poll booth, make sure you grab some copies of the how-to-votes as they may change before election day. Make a pile and then after the election, send them into the National or State Library of your choice. Future researchers will thank you. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>